Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle say 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. The guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes Wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. 
We've got a lot coming up on the program today. Chauncey DeVega is going to be with us in just a moment. Chauncey, uh, Chauncey is the political essayist and commentator, contributor with Salon. He's got a new piece up on Salon, in fact, about uh, Nazism and, uh, and Trumpism. Uh, he's also the host of the Chauncey DeVega Show podcast, uh, his website, Chauncey DeVega, D-E-V-E-G-A.com. And you can tweet him at Chauncey DeVega. Chauncey, welcome back. I wanted to start with this piece you wrote, Are White People Ready to Bail on Democracy? These researchers say the danger is real. Can you set that up for us, please? Well, we know, looking at American history, that racism is a a dagger of sorts at the heart of American democracy. And again, from Trump's hate rallies to his overt racist and nativist speech, we're actually starting to get a lot of good empirical data. And one of the things we're learning, again, from political scientists, sociologists, and others, is that Trump voters and white Americans who are racially resentful in general are much more likely to believe that we should cancel elections, that we should restrict the free press that if Donald Trump basically ordered a rollback of democracy, that they would go along with it. And why is that? Because of social dominance behavior and anxiety about America's changing demographics. So unfortunately, we have too many white Americans who are willing to make a bargain, basically saying, you know what, it's a zero-sum game. And if we can't run the show to American democracy, then it can be damned. Yeah. And so what do we do with that? How do we address white people about this issue? Well, I mean, as you and I have talked about repeatedly, we need to state the facts plainly. And the obvious fact is that America has only been a democracy on paper for 50 years, and that's since the end of the civil rights movement, at least formally in terms of the popular imagination. So in terms of thinking about history, history can move forward, but in terms of American democracy, it's been a very, very slow march, and we can lose the little democracy that we have very quickly. So the easy answer would be, you know, in a perfect world, we fix our educational system. We make sure that we have a true we-the-people democracy. We work to create multiracial, cross-class alliances at every level of American life. But if someone were to give me the big bucks and say, hey, Chauncey, man, what would you tell the Democrats to do in terms of strategy? What would you tell liberals and progressives? I'd say stop wasting your time trying to win over Trump voters. We Uh have a ton of data, again, showing us that these folks are authoritarian, that they are resistant to cosmopolitanism. They want to live in the past and not the present. And, you know, I've spoken to some of the leading experts on Trumpism. I go out and instead of, you know, working with conjecture like some of the talking heads do, I want to try to figure out what we know empirically. And what I'm seeing over the years of studying Trump and Trumpism and working on my own book is that Trump voters cannot be reached. We need to work on those Americans who are on the fence and those other Americans who simply didn't vote. These Trump cultists are a lost cause, and we need to stop worrying about them. I'm inclined to agree with you. There's a a documentary called Documenting Hate, Charlottesville. And in that documentary, they're making the case that the Charlottesville, there's about 500 of these right-wing Uh, white supremacist protesters in Charlottesville, and that that group kind of split into three. And one of those three groups is out still protesting out in public. Another part of that group, and I don't know the percentages here, but another part of that group has gone into more of kind of a Koch brothers mode, for lack of a better way to describe it, you know, uh, recruiting on college campuses, uh, trying to get inside political parties. And a third group has split off and said, we're going to start killing people and we're going to do it quietly, essentially. We're not trying to be the weather underground. We're not you know, trying to be famous. We're just going to start killing people. How would you tie this back to your current piece in Salon about how the Nazis dealt with this and how we should be dealing with it? 
Well, I think, again, we always need to speak truth to power. And we've had too many folks in the mainstream corporate news media, because they've given Trump $5 billion in free advertising, who are willing to still normalize this man. So the first thing we need to understand is when Trump calls the news media, journalists and reporters, enemies of the people, well, that's Stalinist rhetoric that, again, is part of a trend we've seen over the decades with right-wing Republicans and others using eliminationist rhetoric against Democrats, liberals, non-whites, immigrants, and others. So we need to, again, check that box off. And thinking about my piece today, again, saying, you know what, it's both reasonable and appropriate to compare Donald Trump and Trumpism to Hitler and Nazism, you don't want to wait until it's too late. Because once it's too late, there's nothing that can be done. We have all these folks wringing their hands saying, well, is Trump like Hitler? Oh, is that a fair historical analogy? The man is certainly a fascist. He's certainly a racial authoritarian. We have a ton of data about that. And he certainly is, again, holding a dagger at the heart of American democracy. And with Trump and his voters and his supporters, if you look at these hate rallies, does any reasonable person have any doubt in their mind that if Trump again said, go out and start killing people, go out and start attacking journalists, which he has basically said that they wouldn't do it? And again, thinking about this moment and this intermediate people moment, and I mean, that's really important research, thinking about how these right-wing hate groups have splintered. We need to, again, stop wringing our hands. Again, the mainstream corporate news media types, the New York Times today had a piece basically trying to whitewash the Republican Party's association with Nazism. There's a reason that David Duke and other neo-Nazis, Richard Spencer and white supremacists, are attracted to the Republican Party. Because they agree with them, and the Republicans, for the most part, going back to the Southern strategy, agree with them as well. They're just upset about the style and the presentation, and that goes all the way up to Trump. Yeah. Where do you see this going, Chauncey, and what's your biggest concern? Well, I don't think this ends well. As I said, I've spoken to many historians and others about this moment. Um, To some, this will sound dramatic, but I don't see this ending without some sort of civil unrest, quite frankly. And the question then becomes, what is the scale? We've already seen killings and murders. We saw that in Charlottesville. We saw that in Portland. And another important uh, issue we have to talk about with the far right, who are increasingly the center of the Republican Party, because the Republican Party is embracing these people's strategies, they're embracing their policies. Again, there's a huge overlap in the Venn diagram, is we need to have an honest conversation about how America's police are infiltrated and allying with these white supremacists and neo-Nazis. Across the country, there's been some great research on this. We saw this over the weekend. Who do the police protect? The gun-toting right-wing thugs. Yeah. Because why? Because they see them as being more representative of the mainstream. And that's, again, not me you know, playing with a riff here, right? sort of just working with conjecture and rhetoric. We've had research where they basically interviewed the police and looked at internal documents, and the police said, yeah, we side with the neo-Nazis and these violent right-wingers because, quote-unquote, they're more American than the folks who are protesting them. It's remarkably underreported. I mean, I think there's another thing that's going to come out once social demographers start looking at the data. I think we have seen a remarkable rise in interpersonal violence related to Trump's campaign and presidency. And I think also it's going to come out, again, underreported because there's always a lag, that once we get the data from the FBI and local police who, again, thinking about how police report data, some of that data is remarkably unreliable, and they try to sit on it, just like they do with violence um, where police are killing innocent people in the street. I think you're going to see a lot of murders and assaults by Trumpsters and their allies, these neo-Nazis and white supremacists, against black and brown folks, immigrants, and others. And we've already seen the murders. At, at the same time that... You know, the, the, for example, the gun violence in Chicago, where you live, has been heavily reported. That's the right wing's favorite chant, I guess. Thoughts on those? Well, I mean, that's just part of a, a pattern, right? So look at black and brown folks and say, look, look, look at Chicago, and use all sorts of racial slurs. Go to Stormfront, go to Fox News comment sections. But then when you flip the script and say, okay, we have a problem across the country with gun violence, and never mind where these guns are coming from, Indiana, let's talk about right. the violence in this country and mass shootings again, disproportionately committed by white men, 
especially right white wing Trump supporters. I mean, those are huge underreported stories where you look at the horrible massacres at these schools the last few. A lot of these men had connections, these young teens and boys. They were advocates of Donald Trump. They were his supporters. So, I mean, that's just a lazy, lazy, lazy deflection to hide the fact that a lot of these Trump voters, again, thinking back to the Republican Party, where conservatism and racism is now one and the same thing, that they don't want to speak the truth about the real social dynamics of this country. Yeah, and the, and the conservatives who don't want to buy into this are left just basically being corporatists. Chauncey DeVega, chaunceydevega.com. Thank you, Chauncey. Always a pleasure. Great talking with you. We'll be back. Kenyatta in Redlands, California. Hey, Kenyatta, what's up? Hi, Tom. I wanted to talk about the comment by, I believe his name is DeSantos in Florida. Yeah. I've uh, been listening to white, <laughs> that, that was a Freudian slip, right wing radio. Mm. Uh, it's also white wing. <laughs> No, no, but, but no, I didn't mean to do that. But they've talked about, you know, was it innocuous? Did he really? Listen, it's always the wrong questions we ask in this country, which is why this, this thing, this cancer that is the history of black people in this country persists, because it's the wrong questions. It doesn't matter if he meant it, if it was racist, if it was dog whistle, if it was a trumpet. It doesn't matter. What matters is, is that the people like me, that that affected are people who have lived with a legacy of products that depict black people in very disparaging ways, with monkeys, with this type of thing. You may recall a comment about Michelle Obama, a gorilla in heels. Yep. There are no other racial groups that I know in this country that are compared to any type of animal or insect. So the question isn't what he meant. The question is, is that because of the ugly history of this country that white people are responsible for, specifically in terms of black people, whether they want to be or not, they are. It's about how it affects me as a black person. It's not about what you meant. It doesn't matter what you meant. Who uses the term monkey up? Right. I have frankly never heard that phrase, Kenya. The thing that shocked me was that DeSantis's response was not to say, geez, that was insensitive. You know, I never should have used that phrase. It was something from my childhood. I heard my crazy uncle say it once, and I thought it was cool. It never occurred to me that it was racist. I mean, you know, he could have made some uh, semi-palatable excuses, at least an attempt to apologize. He didn't do any of that. He just essentially doubled down on it. Back to you, Kenyatta. Well, I think that that's very consistent with, again, the history of this country. Why is it that the United States admittedly says that slavery, quote-unquote, was its original sin, yet it has never formally apologized for saying. Yeah. I thought there was, was it merely an attempt to have a formal apology from Congress? This was just a, a decade right. or so ago, wasn't it? Right. They didn't pass it? No. Oh, my. I think that that's because you've got so many white people who are scared to death of reparations, which is a whole yeah. other conversation, but, yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, it is, Tom. But I do appreciate your feedback on this. For me, at this point in time, jumping up and down about is it racist isn't the issue. The issue is what has happened to these people. And you can look at the history of black people in America that makes them so different. And if the society is responsible for that, then the society needs to be responsible for that and acknowledge yeah. it. Yeah. Well, the thing is that we have always in this country, and I don't think that this is unique to this country. I think it's part of the human condition at a certain level. 
there has always been this, to paraphrase the old Chris Christopherson song, everybody's got to have somebody to look down on. And the way that the Irish immigrants were treated in the 1840s through the 1860s, the way that the Italian immigrants were treated in the 1880s through the 1900s, these are stories that are well known to white people. The difference was that because they looked white, they were able to integrate into society, lose their accents, and basically just kind of vanish into the population. Whereas people who are visibly different, who have darker skin, don't have that luxury. I mean, that's part of white privilege. <laughs> I can't help but laugh at that. Why? No, no, I'm with you. But whenever there's one of these police shootings, you hear the mantra of that they're such, you know, and I'm not disparaging police officers, but, you know, they're heroes and they put on the uniform every day. But you see, they can take that uniform off. Right. I can't take mine off. Yeah, exactly. And it's, this is the thing that so many white people don't get. And it's just... You know, we got a lot of work to do. Kenyatta, thanks for the call. It's always nice to hear from you. I appreciate it. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Rich? Hi. Hey, you're on the air. I basically just want to say, let's give you a hint of my age, too. <laughs> Howard Cosell, mm-hmm. back in the 70s, got zapped hardcore for using the term monkey right and this guy and any other person whether they mean to or not use a racist slur should be hung by their ears well i don't know about hung by their ears but they should be you know what i mean i they, mean they need to lose their job they need to take the time to think if they're in a public environment where they're using public statements and they're not thinking about what they're saying, and they're saying things that offend people. They don't belong in the public environment, period. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I think that they should be censured, essentially. They should be told, no, we really don't want to hear from you anymore. Rich, thank you so much for, uh, for saying that. I appreciate the call. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead. And it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder. And as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day. I used to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, i got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 
50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at choosemuse, choosemuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. Choosemuse.com. David Horowitz says of this new book, Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past, James Robbins has written a richly informed book about the campaign to demonize America by erasing and then rewriting its history. This is a totalitarian agenda, and Americans who love their country should arm themselves with Robbins' book. On the line with us is James S. Robbins, the author of Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past. James, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're welcome. I should add that your Twitter handle is at James underscore Robbins, just like mine is Tom underscore Hartman. So, James, why do you want to memorialize traitors who fought to preserve slavery and took arms against America and killed 600,000 people? I mean, white supremacist Tim McVeigh also took up arms against America. Do you want a monument to him? Oh, well, certainly not. I think a proper monument to him was the video of him being executed. I think that was just perfect for him. Then why Robert uh, E. Lee? Why Robert E. Lee? Well, Robert E. Lee killed a lot, a lot more Americans than Tim McVeigh. Well, he thought that he was defending his country. No, he didn't. And, uh, he separated well, from his country. What, Robert E. Lee didn't think he was defending his country. No, he did not. He separated from his country. When you well, secede from the United uh, States, you are not defending the United States. You are committing treason. He's a traitor. Oh, well, he was uh, he was defending Virginia. That was his point. Of Virginia view. is not the United States. Well, but I'm telling you what his point is. So you was. think and that somebody who against the premise that he was defending his country, but that's what he thought. He did not think he was defending his country. You're right. He thought he was defending Virginia, or at least that part of Virginia that wanted to maintain slavery. But I don't understand what it is about treason that is so seductive to you guys. Oh, well, is it really what I'm talking about? I'm not really talking about the Civil War, because this starts with the Civil War. It starts with Confederate monuments, and then pretty soon people want to take down George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. Actually, those Confederate monuments were not put up during the Civil War. Most of those Confederate monuments were put up after Birth of a Nation came out in 1915 in this massive revival of the Klan across the South. Well, a lot of those monuments were put up even before that. I mean, we can quibble. Yeah, there were two periods. There was one in the 1880s. And if you take a look at all the monuments across the United States to the Civil War generals, what you find is that about 80% of them were put up in two 10-year periods, one in the 1880s and the other in the late teens and the early 1920s. And Mm -hmm. in both cases, they followed a revival of the Ku Klux Klan, and they followed attempts to intimidate black people from voting. Well, that's one theory. No, it's supported by the evidence. That's an interesting theory. Monuments were put up in North and South. They were put up by a variety of reasons, by a variety of people. The ones in the South were put up by Democrats. Democrats are now taking... Democrats were the party of slavery until 1965. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, Democrats... But the Democratic Party today has nothing to do with that. Taking them down. The Democratic Party today has nothing to do with that, James. You know, maybe you weren't alive in the 60s or haven't read that history, but the Democratic Party repudiated slavery and racism in the 1960s. The Republicans then stepped in to embrace it with something Richard Nixon called the Southern Strategy. It's great that the the Democrats caught up to the Republican Party, the traditional anti-slavery party. It's great that it took them 100 years to catch up. I think you were talking over me when I said, and then the Republican Party with Richard Nixon's Southern Strategy in 1968, three years after the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed, stepped in to pick up that Southern racist vote. 
Oh, that's really funny. I mean, it was uh, it was Jimmy Carter who restored citizenship to Jefferson Davis. What does that have to do with anything? What it has to do with is that people on the left want to bring back the Civil War. They want to refight the Civil War, and they want to use it as a tool of intimidation. No, I would say if you want to do these blanket kind of indictments, the, the people on the left over, want the to Civil say... The Civil War is over, and it's not worth relitigating. And this whole thing about Civil War monuments is just an attempt. It's the thin end of a wedge to question the entire basis of American history, the entire legacy of freedom of the United States. It extends to Jefferson, it extends to Washington, it extends to anybody that the left doesn't like. Okay, so why, let's move along here. Why do you think black football players should be prevented from kneeling to protest police violence against black men? They're public oh, figures, too. Uh, I think that they should do their job, which is to play a game of sports. They are entertainers, and they should focus more on that. Their protest really has no place against the national anthem and that the people are responding to this by tuning out the NFL in droves, which is a proper uh, free choice to do. So you want to suppress the right of African-Americans to protest the murder of African-Americans by police in the United States? No, uh, NFL players can do all they want, except during game time. In game time, they should focus on the game. They're employees of the league, and they should focus on that. If they want to use the millions and millions of dollars that they earn to start programs, to help inner-city communities... So are you joining me in calling for the NFL to stop the whole phony patriotism thing? Taking a knee is cheap, my friend. James, James, we have limited time here. Filibustering does not help. Are you going to join me in calling for the NFL? You know, this whole thing with the Pledge of Allegiance and everything. Prior to, I think it was 2005, 2008, whatever year it was, the Army was desperately trying to recruit because George W. Bush broke the military with two illegal wars. And so they paid the NFL tens of millions of dollars to do this whole, we're going to play the national anthem, we're going to salute the flag, and we're going to have military flyovers, and they're going to pass out recruiting literature in the stadiums at the end of the game. And this happened for, you know, a half a dozen years or so. And then the military stopped paying for it. When the military stopped paying for it, shouldn't we have stopped doing it? I mean, why do we want to militarize and nationalize a sporting event. My friend, national anthems and flag ceremonies and things have been going on at football games since the 1950s. So the fact that the Defense Department... Not in the NFL. ...some things and you know, recruiting things... Yes, no, this began NFL. when the NFL started history, taking money from the Pentagon. Friend. Check your history. No, it did not. It's all in my book. It's easy to look up. You can go on YouTube and find videos of games from the 50s where they're playing the national anthem and rules for players to show respect to the flag during the national anthem started in 1963. Okay. All right. In that case, then you think that those rules are what we should be following and we should be imposing on these players. You know, tough luck, Charlie. So they're trying to shoot you. You know, you can't do anything about it. Well, you know, if the players want to show respect for the flag, I think that they should. There shouldn't have to be rules for that. They should show a little respect for their country during their million-dollar entertainment venues. And if they don't, then I think the NFL should fire them. Okay. I guess we have a difference of opinion here. You say in your book that we are dissing Christopher Columbus's memory. I have a bit of a problem with that. I mean, Christopher Columbus started the first international sex trade operation. He wrote to the king of Spain. He said, 100 Castellanos, a Spanish coin, are as easily obtained for a woman as a farm and it's very general that there are plenty of dealers who go about looking for girls. Those from 9 to 10 years old are now in most demand. He gave a young Taino woman to his number two guy, Mr. Cueno, Miguel Cueno, 
who said, quote, Columbus gave me my own sex slave, a beautiful young girl who resisted with all her strength, leaving me no choice but to thrash her mercilessly and rape her. This is the guy that you think we should be celebrating? The purpose of honoring Columbus, in addition to honoring the heritage of Italian-Americans, which is one of the reasons why... I think a lot of Italian-Americans are embarrassed by this. Well, a lot of them are, but maybe, but a lot of them also think that Columbus was somebody worth honoring and that Italy is something worth honoring. What's worth honoring? A guy who's a fortune hunter who kills people and rapes people. Well, if people want to hunt fortunes, well, you know, what business is it of yours? Well, that's my point. What business of it is our nations in celebrating a guy who bumbled into this continent and then proceeded to murder people? I mean, he he killed a couple of million Indians, the Tainos, in what's now uh, Haiti and Dominican Republic. And, I mean, it literally wiped them out. They, it reached the point, this is, again, uh, Quaino, the, the guy who was his number two guy on the boat. He said that as a result of the suffering and hard labor they have endured, the Indians choose and have chosen suicide. Occasionally, a hundred have committed mass suicide. The women, exhausted by labor, have shunned conception and childbirth. Many, when pregnant, have taken something to abort and have aborted. Others have delivered after delivery, have killed their children with their own hands so as not to leave them in such oppressive slavery. This is what, what we we're supposed to be celebrating, what we celebrate James? With Columbus, what we celebrate are the consequences of his voyage, the discovery of the New World, and everything. That the Vikings discovered that. the New World 500 years earlier. Well, they didn't do much with it, but what Columbus discovered it and did much with it. Uh, he's the guy who opened up the New World to the later waves of European exploration and, and exploitation that from that. The United States and then South America. So I'm assuming then you also celebrate the largest genocide in the history of the world. The most consequential human migration. So I'm assuming then that you're celebrating the largest genocide in the history of the world. And freedom. So I, I, you know, I'm assuming, James, that you're celebrating the largest genocide in the history of the world. We killed somewhere between 40 and 100 million Native Americans on this continent over a 300, 400 year period. That's what you're celebrating? Well, that was a, an unintended consequence of a lot of it. I mean, that had unintended to do with transmission of disease. No, most of that was from disease, but that was a lot of it was. And don't go into this whole, you know, smallpox blanket nonsense. Well, it's not nonsense. It actually happened in Ohio, but that's not my point. I mean, you know, manifest destiny. Jefferson opened up the West and directed the army to go out and kill Indians. You yeah, denying that? He directed the army to go kill Indians. That was his order, go kill Indians. That was yeah. his order. Clear the lands. I mean, you know, what's the difference? Well, some okay, of the, lands the, the book is, is Erasing America by James S. Robbins. This is the Tom Hartman Program. You can tweet him at James underscore Robbins. Thanks, James. Tony in Huntsville, Alabama. Hey, Tony, what's on your mind? Tom, how you doing, buddy? Good. What's up? Listen, uh, as a person who did five years in the prison system here in Alabama, oh I can tell you about the slavery thing firsthand. We go out there, we pick tomatoes, squash, okra. That stuff ends up in Kroger and Walmart. They pay us 25 cents an hour. They stand in the tower with the long 12-gauge shotgun trained on you while you work. During my tenure work and in prison, I saw two men get shot because you're working on the line and you have to use the bathroom. And if you're new and you think you can go to a tree or something and use the bathroom, they shoot you because you came from in between the imaginary lines that all the old guys know. Wow. But the new guys don't know. And they say, inmate, and everybody drops down. And they just, boom, kill you right on the spot and bury you on the hill. 
look, this thing is about money. The racism is going to work. Black people had Obama, so white people got Trump, and they're glad, and they're not going to relinquish the fact that we had Obama. We loved Obama. They loved Trump. It's always worked. It's always going to work. The problem is the private prison system is the key in Alabama. All they have in Alabama is agriculture and prison, and they want people of color to have so much time. I was watching MSNBC. They were talking about Paul Manafort is going to get eight years. Eight years? Hell, I got a 20 for some dope. Wow. this man is colluding with Russians, and he might get eight years? Well, not only that, the judge that was the judge in the Manafort case, Judge Ellis, he had previously had a guy come before him who was convicted of a $20 million tax fraud case. Manafort's was only $18 million, and he gave the guy seven months in jail. This is ridiculous. This is the craziest thing I ever heard in my life. This is why this stuff doesn't work, Tom, yeah. because an upscale white man Nothing happens to him. He can do anything in the world. A black man sell a rock, and he's going to get no less than 20 years hard labor. And Jefferson Sessions is the worst man in the world, Tom. He's one of the reasons that the people here in Alabama are suffering, because if you're a person of color, they're going to make sure you get the long haul so that these shareholders and these companies can make lots and lots and lots of money on you long term. We call it going up for parole. We call it going up for denial. Right. Remarkable. Tony, thank you for sharing your story with us. I truly appreciate it. And this is such grim stuff here in the United States. We need to awaken from the horrors of this and reform our penal system, reform our criminal justice system, and fix the racism in this country. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We need to explicitly renounce the racism in this country. Larry in Danbury, Connecticut, watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Good afternoon, Tom. I enjoy your program a number of years now. I think we all, or progressives, agree that the Trump separating the families at the borders was wrong morally. A number of courts, the Ninth Circuit, and a couple of other court decisions came down that overturned it. Right. So my question But there's still over 500 kids who are separated from their parents. Right. Those were court decisions. It was at the Ninth Circuit, and there was, I think there was a, a court in Arizona that also ruled against it. Yeah. Um, okay. So my question to you is this. His executive order was overturned by the courts by judicial review. So I know you're against judicial review, and I called once before about this, but I just want to hear your comments about why, in this case, judicial review was bad. I mean, it was good. So I just, oh, I, I'm not opposed unilaterally to judicial review. I think the the judiciary checking either of the other two branches, the legislative or the executive, is appropriate. My argument is that, and in fact, I've been, shall we say, rethinking this. Uh, if, if, If the court was to go back to the frequency of constitutional questions that they that they took on, that they had in the first 70 years of the United States, in the first 70 years, there were three cases in 70 years and they turned out you know the third one was dread sky you know it turned out to be a disaster but if they went back to that kind of frequency i probably wouldn't be as freaked out about it 
But instead, every single or virtually every single ruling that the Supreme Court is now doing is striking down laws, modifying laws, rewriting laws based on what they say is the Constitution. In these cases, these courts did not rule that Trump violated the Constitution. They ruled that he violated the law. And that's entirely appropriate judicial okay. review. All right. So if, I if, just understood in, from the past that you were against judicial review. I think that when board, but now, now yeah, I think that when when the court overturns laws that have been passed by the legislature by both branches of Congress and have been signed by the president, when the court overturns those laws, it should do so very carefully, very thoughtfully, and with great deference to what the consequences might be. That's not to say that they shouldn't be able to do that. On the other hand, you know, Congress could then pass a law, and this is Article Three, Section Two of the Constitution. Congress could then pass a law saying, well, in fact, we're going to continue doing, you know, and you can't stop us. Congress has that power. They've never exercised it, but they have that power. There are remedies for out-of-control judicial review, and the principal one that has been used is what FDR did in 1937 when he said to the Supreme Court, if you keep knocking down my child labor laws and right to unionize laws, if you keep knocking these things down, I'm going to change the composition of the court. And that's, again, Article 3, Section 2. That, that power is given to, to Congress and to the president. And FDR could have pulled it off. And the court changed as a result of that threat. They literally, there was not a single new person or an old, you know, put on the court or an old person taken off. They just changed their behavior as a result of that threat. And, uh, but FDR was the last president, to the best of my knowledge, to really seriously take on the court. Larry, thanks for the call. A good point, a good point. And, and well... I'm, I'm working on a book on the Supreme Court right now. I'm getting really getting into this. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Settlers, the Mythology of the White Proletariat, the True Story of the White Nation by Jay Sakai, published by Morningstar Press in 1989. This is from Chapter 2, The Foundations of Settler Life. The life of European settlers and the class structure of their society was abnormal because it was dependent upon a foundation of conquest, genocide, and enslavement. The myth of the self-sufficient white settler family clearing the wilderness and supporting themselves through their own initiative and hard labor is a propaganda fabrication. It is the absolute characteristic of settler society to be parasitic, dependent upon the super-exploitation of oppressed peoples for its style of life. Never has Euro-American society completely supported itself. This is the decisive factor in the consciousness of all classes and strata of white society from 1600 to now. Settler society was raised up above the level of backward old Europe by a foundation of conquest. This conquest was a miracle drug for a Europe convulsed with the reaction of decaying feudalism and deadly capitalism. Shot into the veins of the Spanish feudal nation, for instance, the miracle drug of the New World Conquest, gave Spain the momentary power to overrun North Africa, Holland, and Italy before her historical incident waned. Like many such fixes for Euro-Americans, this conquest was addicting. It was habit-forming and rapidly indispensable, not only culturally, but in the mechanism of an oppressor society whose lifeblood was new conquest. We'll examine this later in the relationship of settlerism to imperialism. For now, it's enough to see that this conquest is a material act of great magnitude, an economic and social event as important as the emergence of the factory system or the exploitation of petroleum in the Middle East. We stress the obvious here because the Euro-American settlers have always made light of their invasion and occupation, 
although the conquered territory is the precondition for their whole society. Traditionally, European settler societies throw off the propaganda smoke screens that they didn't really conquer and dispossess other nations. They claim with false modesty that they merely moved into vacant territory. So the early English settlers depicted America as empty, a howling wilderness, unsettled, sparsely populated, just waiting with a vacant sign on the door for the first lucky civilization to walk in and claim it. Theodore Roosevelt wrote defensively in 1900, quote, the settler and pioneer have at bottom had justice on their side. This great continent could not have been kept as nothing but a game preserve for squalid savages, end of quote. It is telling that this lie is precisely the same lie put forward by white Afrikaner settlers who claim that South Africa was literally totally uninhabited by any Africans when they arrived from Europe. To universal derision, these European settlers claim to be the only rightful historic inhabitants of South Africa. Or we can hear similar defenses uh, uh, put forward by the European settlers of Israel who claim that much of the Palestinian land and buildings they occupy are rightfully theirs since the Arabs allegedly decided to voluntarily abandon it all during the 1948-49 war. Are these kinds of tales any less preposterous than those put forward by Euro-American settlers? America was spacious and sparsely populated only because the European invaders destroyed whole civilizations and killed off millions of Native Americans to get the land and profits they wanted. We all know that when the English arrived in Virginia, for example, they encountered an urban, village-dwelling society far more skilled than they were in the arts of medicine, agriculture, fishing, and government. This civilization was reflected in a chain of 300 Indian nations and peoples stretching from the Arctic Circle to the tip of South America, many of whom had highly developed societies. The point is that genocide was not an accident, not an excess, not the unintended side effect of virile European growth. Genocide was the necessary and deliberate act of the capitalists and their settler shock troops. The book Settlers. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tammy in Spirit Lake, Iowa. Hey, Tammy, thank you for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind? Well, Tom, I just kind of wanted to keep you up to date since I'm here in Ground Zero in Steve King's district. Oh, my. Regarding the unfortunate death of Molly Tibbetts and the racism. Mm -hmm. Because another form of slavery is these undocumented workers are working in the dairies, the hog confinements, the chicken confinements. I mean, there's thousands of animals jammed in these buildings, and that's where they're working, mm. not to mention the slaughterhouses. So it has kind of uncovered a dirty little secret of the underbelly of the giant agribusiness here in the state of Iowa. The gentleman upon whose farm that the guy was working, is a huge Republican donor hmm. with the Farm Bureau. So on one hand, they complain about the illegal status of these folks, as in Steve King, but on the other hand, they exploit them to work on their farms. Right. And this is one of the reasons why they like this, because they can threaten these folks with deportation, with exposure, and squeeze more work out of them. They can engage in wage theft. They can engage in assault, including sexual assault. And they routinely get away with these kinds of things. And the solution, obviously, is to have rational, comprehensive immigration policy. Uh, one solution. Uh, another solution, of course, is to raise the wages so that we don't need to rely on immigrants to do every single job. 
But certainly nobody in the Republican Party is willing to discuss either of those two things. Well, that's true. And of course, unfortunately, um, Steve King is using this to whip up racism here. It is so out of control now. It's like you can hardly even have a decent conversation with anyone because they're just so, you know, it's the immigrants' fault. You know, they're carrying disease and drugs. And I mean, it's just, it's beyond comprehension that this is where we are in the new millennium. It's mind-boggling. It's a true tragedy. You live in Iowa. I don't know where Spirit Lake is. Steve King's district. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, Steve King used to actually come on this show. I used to debate him, but he, I remember. St he stopped coming on because I think I was just regularly kicking his butt. But is he worse than he used to be? You know, it seems like with the election of Trump, racism is okay again. Yeah. What I'm finding, it's become okay, and it's just very disturbing. And so his brand of politics works. At least in the Republican Party and apparently in Iowa. Do you think there's any chance Iowa's going to flip blue in this election cycle? You know, I think J.D. Shulton does have a real chance against Steve King. He's the first one that has a chance in a long time. If hmm. you have a chance to interview him, he's wonderful. And he's running on Medicaid for all, you know, but he's running on the liberal policies, you know, the ones who are sort of wishy-washy. I don't think they're going to make it, but that's just me. Yeah, and that's my, my sense of it, too, that, that if somebody's running as a, as a real progressive, they will energize the progressive base who will turn out and elect them. And, you know, hopefully that's what's going to happen in Florida. I'd love to see that happen in Iowa. Tammy, thanks for the heads up and for the information and for watching Free Speech TV. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high tech. And yes, I'll say it. It is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and, you're, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. There's a lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. Tom Harmon here with you. Alan in Beaumont, Texas, listening on Sirius XM. Hey, Alan, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I want to just kind of highlight... The guy, what's his name, Kavanaugh, that they're trying to put on the Supreme yeah, Court? Yeah, Brett Kavanaugh, yeah. Yeah, in my opinion, 
the Democratic Party and the media are in complete submission. I agree. And what I'm talking about is when they speak of this man, they talk about they can't get his records and is he qualified, you know, all his qualifications are lack thereof or whatever. To me, the only thing they should be talking about is the hypocrisy, the dishonesty, the lack of integrity of these Republicans for even trying to put the man up. You know, every time when Obama was in office, they changed every rule that it was before, you know, to get their way on things. Yep, they even changed the filibuster. Instead of asking them about this man, why don't they call them out for their hypocrisy? You know, when when Obama had a chance to um, nominate somebody, oh, we can't do that. It's an election coming up. But it's perfectly fine to do it now. And they're not saying a word about it. Well, there there are a lot of Democrats who are speaking out on this, Alan, but you're right. There's I mean the media primarily. Yeah, yeah the media is by and large ignoring it. And the and the real elephant in the room, you know, no pun on Republicans, is that Brett Kavanaugh worked for George W. Bush in the legal office in the White House that was participating in writing the memos that were authorizing illegal torture. And that's yeah, exactly. the stuff that they're hiding. That's the stuff that the Republicans are refusing to release and that the Democrats are saying that they want. And these hearings are going to start on Tuesday. Mitch McConnell is pushing this through. And we still don't have any of the information from the years that this guy was a partisan, right-wing, rabid, torture-loving pit bull for George W. Bush. And I think it would disqualify him. And that's why the Republicans are not allowing this stuff to come out. And on yeah, top of that, yeah. of course, you know, Merrick Garland, I mean, you know, Neil Gorsuch got his seat. But, the, you know, it should have been President Obama. He had the right to nominate somebody. So I'm with you, Alan. I'm disgusted yeah. and horrified by the whole, whole thing. Thank you for the call and for bringing it up. Charles in Miami. Hey, Charles, what's on your mind today? I was calling the reference to the guy that's um, supposed to be a suspected killer of the girl. And um, I guess it was the I. Yeah. And you referred to him as an, uh, did you say illegal alien? I, I originally said he was an illegal alien, and then I said we really should refer to people like that as undocumented immigrants or undocumented persons, because people aren't illegal. His immigration status is outside the law, but it's not even, it's not even felony law, if that's the point you were going to make, Charles. Yeah, my point I wanted to make was either he would be considered illegally employed. Yeah. You know. Yeah, he was an illegal worker. You're right. And he was working for, according to the caller from Iowa, a major Republican donor who owns a big farm in Iowa. Yes. I saw that same guy, the donor, saying that, well, we had him E-verified. Has that been verified? Yeah. You know, t- that, um, that they went through all the proper procedures. And if that is the case, then it seems like through this administration, the way that they're harping on saving jobs and stopping illegals from taking jobs away from regular Americans, that they would want to change this immediately. So that should be something that Mitch McConnell has on the docket immediately as well. You would and think so. So I don't believe him. And I think you skated so far because the press isn't looking into it. Yeah. And, you know, it's not an illegal worker here. I think that people are being illegally employed and employers are stealing jobs from American workers. Yeah, I've been saying for years, we don't have an illegal immigrant problem in the United States. We have an illegal employer problem. And if this guy did pass E-Verify, 
either he supplied false information or he actually is in this country legally. And we still don't know the answer to that. The, the news media is still saying we don't know, which means that the administration, which would have access to that information within minutes, is uh, you know sitting on it. And you have to wonder, why would the Trump administration sit on information that might prove that somebody's in this country illegally when there is a possibility that that information is actually exculpatory? It actually indicates that he is legally in this country. And that's the only reason I can think of that they're sitting on it. But they're trying to turn this into a giant, oh my God, brown people are killing white people thing. And they're succeeding on right-wing hate radio and they're succeeding over on Fox so-called news. It's just a terrible thing. Charles, thanks for the call. Spot on. James in Franklin, Tennessee. Hey, James, what's on your mind? The caller called in and said that the monkey part of this thing, he was spot on. What they should be is talking about socialism because people don't know what a democratic socialist is, a lot of people. And they just explain to them that it's about programs we need. And in 2008, the main corporations in the world went socialist overnight. They was willing to accept full part in or to help from the society, the whole populace. Yeah, trillions of dollars. When it comes down to the populace getting the help, that's when it comes to a stop. And the Democratic strategists they've got up there, they're not in touch with really what's going on. The Democratic Party needs people like Richard Wolf and Norm Korsky and people like this talking for us. Yeah. They're, not, they're out there just talking stuff. This is important. Yeah, but we realize the, the problem that the Democratic Party has right now is with the media. Back when Bill Clinton was president, there was always more Republicans than Democrats on Meet the Press and the other Sunday shows. And when they were confronted about why that was, they said, well, you know, you've got to have the opposition voice. The Democrats control the House, you know, or control the government. And then when George W. Bush came along and became president, Again, Meet the Press had more Republicans than Democrats on regularly. Why is that? Well, because you've got a Republican administration in charge. You have to listen to them. And this is, continues literally to this day. It's very rare that you see an actual progressive on television on any of these networks. And it's not that the Democrats aren't saying these things that need to be said. It's that nobody's hearing them say it because they are denied the megaphone of corporate media. Steve in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Steve, what's up? First of all, I have to thank you for having the courage even to talk about racism. But the question is, do you think that racism will ever be undone? And why do we have racism? When do you think it will ever be undone in our lifetime? Yeah. I think that the and reason we... People, and why are people racist? I think the reason why we have racism is that as a species, as the human race, we are all born, and I think this is true of most mammals, uh, we are born with an instinct to protect first those closest to us genetically, family basically, and then, and then clan, and then tribe, and then nation. And so our bonds with other people diminish as they become less like us. I think that the way we overcome racism is by finding things that bind us together that are stronger than the color of our skin, our shared values, our shared struggles, our shared perspectives, our shared worldviews, which I, you know, all kind of fall into the, under the rubric of values. And one of the things that we know is that you know, measurable racism among white people is higher in areas where white people have had no contact with black people throughout their lives, and lower, generally speaking, in areas where people have had a fair amount of contact with people of color, with different races. And so the whole idea of integration 
even if it's done in a way that, you know, like with forced busing, in a way that many people object to, is still, I think, one of the most useful ways to prevent long-term racism. We need to build that sense of community, tribe, and family in a way that is stronger than just how we look. Does that make sense, Steve? Yeah, it does make sense, but I came up doing Dr. King and the Till Rice era, and I guess I'm a bit, I'm not quite as naive as I was, but I really was hoping, but I don't, is it reasonable for me to say that really now, I'm 72, it's not going to hardly change in the next 30 years, right? Oh, I think it will. How long? I think it will. I think this millennial generation coming up, there's a big change. I think that the generation that are now you and me, Steve, the boomers, we saw a big change. You know, in the post-Brown versus Board of Education and the civil rights movement and all that, there was a, a change, but we still carry the baggage of having grown up in a society and a culture where people of color were por portrayed as not smart and inarticulate and things like that. And But I think this millennial generation coming up really gets it. So I'm quite hopeful, actually. Steve, thank you for the call and for a thought-provoking conversation. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. The other piece of that, by the way, in addition to people getting to know each other, is the positive portrayal of minorities in the media, which we really need to be encouraging. Jesse in Miami, Florida. Hey, Jesse, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hey, thanks for being there. Hey, uh, a guy made a comment from Columbia that really made me give, give it some thought. Uh, I want to pass it on to you. You might have seen it because it was on uh, Amy Goodman's show. But the guy lost in Columbia uh, for the presidential uh, run recently, and he said there's no such thing as right and left no more. There's only life and death. Mm. And I gave that some thought, and I, I think that man is really uh, hitting on something. What do you think? I think that's a great point. I think that, that also the political dynamic in this country has shifted pretty substantially from right-left or Democrat-Republican to insider-outsider, to those with power to those, and versus those with no power, to those with wealth versus those with no wealth. And increasingly, working-class Americans across the board and across all racial lines and everything are finding themselves in the category of without power and without wealth. You got, you know, roughly half the country can't deal with a $1,000 uh, expense. It, it would wipe them out. I mean, that, that's mind-boggling. You know, and it continues on that line. So I think that that point is really well made. It seems like there's a, a really substantial realignment in American politics happening as a result of 40 years of Reaganomics, you know, taking, taking a stick and kneecapping the middle class or the working class or both. Look at this system, and you just think the dynamics of it is lives don't matter, profit matters. So when yeah. people's lives don't matter, I mean, it's a choice of life and death if you're going to assume that kind of concept. Yep. And to make it worse, the not only has the Republican Party taken this position for years, I mean, for a century now, but the Supreme Court has as well. And you look back at when the Supreme Court was packed with Republicans in the uh, Lochner era, when they were saying child labor laws are unconstitutional and all this kind of stuff and uh, denying the right to unionize. And then all that changed in 37 because of FDR's political pressure. But but now we're back to that and we're back to an era where the Supreme Court is actively and aggressively trashing the rights of labor, trashing the rights of working people, trashing the rights of people who want to vote, gutting the Voting Rights Act of 1965. You add all this stuff together and all you can conclude 
is that the Republican Party is the party of oligarchy, that they're the party of the very rich and the very powerful, and that's where they get their money, and that's who they serve, and that's who they vote on behalf of, and that's why the things that the majority of Americans want, like net neutrality or Medicare for all, or strengthening of Social Security or taxing of the rich to pay for programs that are going to benefit all of us, rebuilding our infrastructure, 21st century energy grid, none of those things are happening because the billionaires who own the Republican Party don't want them to happen, and the Republican Party is worshiping at the altar of, of wealth and power, you know, specifically Koch brothers' wealth and power. Do you think the average American's figuring this out, Jesse? Yeah, and can I get this in quick? Sure. When are you going to get Warren Buffett on there to say, how can we win the class war? Yeah, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, Linda in Chicago. Hey, Linda, thanks for listening on Chicago's Progressive Talk. What's up? Well, I want to ask you a question. Is why hasn't David Duke and other uh, other Nazi leaders here in the U.S. who were born here or not born here have their citizenship taken away? Even their national citizenship can be taken away under the Section Three little paragraph. And and I just want to I I just want to know why something has never been done to to stop this. I I I can't stand this divide in this country of black, white, Asian, uh, uh, all of it. I, I wasn't yeah. brought up this way. I get what you're saying, Linda, but the thing that we need to remember, the lesson that we need to constantly remember is anything the government does to our enemies, it can do to us. And so if we were to change U.S. policy, I mean, take it, stripping somebody of their citizenship is effectively a, a form of banishment. It's one of the most, you know, short of being executed for treason, probably the most severe punishment that can be meted out to anybody uh, short of imprisonment. It's a really, really radical step. Donald Trump and his buddies probably think that I'm worse than David Duke. And if we were to start taking away people's citizenship because we disagree with their politics, you and I might be next on the list, Linda. I understand that, but it's like this hatred that this man has caused over the years yeah. and feeding ignorant people who don't want to read or look into is just so heartbreaking. I, I absolutely agree, Linda. I, I, I absolutely agree. The thing to do about it is to inform people to wake people up. Linda, thank you for the call. Valerie in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Valerie, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I just wanted to bring to your attention a response I got from Jeff Flake when I asked him to not vote for Brett Kavanaugh for Supreme Court. Uh -huh. And um, I was just really disturbed by what he said. It is a uh, form kind of letter, but his comment was that Judge Kavanaugh is an accomplished mainstream jurist. And, you know, what I don't understand about Jeff Flake is he is not even you know, going to be reelected. He's not even, and his criticism of Trump has been so, you know, vocal, yet he just goes along with everything Trump wants. Yeah, it's wrong. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Here's what's going on, Valerie. There is uh, seven to one is the amount of money that's being spent right now by conservatives versus progressives to uh, promote uh, the voting for uh, Brett Kavanaugh versus trying to oppose him. And the reason why is because Kavanaugh is probably going to be the most business-friendly person on the court since, since, uh, oh geez, I, you know, going back to the 19th century, really. Uh, uh, 
uh, I was going to say Lewis Powell, but even Lewis Powell was was not as business friendly as as Kavanaugh. You know, he's Mr. Deregulation, Mr. Let the corporations do what they want. Uh, you know, his his uh, his voting record is absolutely horrible, and he's just said a whole series of outrageous things. But you've got the billionaire class who Jeff Flake is relying on to hire him when he retires. Mm -hmm. The business class is saying we want this guy. So Jeff Flake is not going to change his vote because he's looking at his his future income, which is why, frankly, the proposal that Elizabeth Warren has made, which I'm going to talk about, the proposal that Elizabeth Warren has made to clean up our government is so very important because it would prevent uh, Jeff Flake from doing exactly what he's planning on doing, which is getting in the pocket of the, the billionaires who are supporting Brett Kavanaugh. That's what's going on, and that's why. He seems like such a hypocrite that I think I understand now. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Valerie, thanks for the call. It's great to hear from you. Paul in Beaumont, Texas. Hey, Paul, what's up? Hey, how you doing, Tom? Good. Hey, I, I, got, I got a quick question. I, I love listening to different opinions, different uh -oh. viewpoints. Here it comes. Okay. <laughs> Here it comes. Here it comes. Okay. We're, talk we're talking about foreign interference in, in elections. Right. Correct. Okay. What San Francisco is proposing with illegal immigrants, non-citizens voting. What San Francisco is not proposing that, Paul. Do what? San Francisco is not proposing that. Nobody's proposing that. Nobody in the country wants. And by the way, it's illegal. One of the opinions yeah. that you've apparently tuned into is a crackpot who's lying to you. Okay. Well, that's why I'm calling to get a different opinion. Okay. Nobody wants somebody who's not a citizen to vote, period. We used to have a voting system that was incredibly seamless and tight because we used biometrics to determine whether you actually were who you said you were. We compared people's signatures. Signatures are about the hardest thing to fake. And if you regularly vote, Paul, you know that at least it used to be you go in and you, you have to sign in to vote and they compare your signature with your with your initial registration card. And and that that is biometrics, Paul, and that is the one of the most effective ways, one of the hardest ways to fake your identity. But, you know, the Republicans want to replace all that to make it just harder for everybody to vote because they know if they can suppress the vote broadly by scaring people with things like, oh, San Francisco wants immigrants to vote. If they can suppress the vote, then they're more likely to have their guys elected because wealthy white people in the suburbs always vote, no matter what. They understand that their economic prosperity and their privilege depends on it. Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.